Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Julie Berry was inspired to write her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce, while listening to a college lecture she found online about medieval France. Fascinated, Berry began a two-year dive into research on the era, learning about the lives of several medieval female mystics like Claire of Assisi and Catherine of Siena, women who rejected marriage, almost unheard of at the time, and bucked the authority of the church with their own religious visions. The Passion of Dulce is set during the 13th century in southern France, the area now known as Provence, in the aftermath of the Albigensian Crusade. Today we're going to talk about the surprising number of parallels between the issues facing people in the 13th century and issues we're facing today. We're going to also talk about uh, some of Barry's other work, including All the Truth That's in Me and The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwillow Place. One reviewer, speaking of that last-mentioned book, said if David Sedaris and Agatha Christie had a child, it would be Julie Berry. Julie Berry grew up in western New York. She holds a bachelor's degree from Rensselaer in communication and an MFA from uh, Vermont College in writing for children and young adults, and she now lives in Southern California with her husband and four sons. So I understand, um, I'm reading here, you began a two-year dive into research of the era for Passion of Dulce. Um, and this was, in turn, I guess, um, initiated by an online lecture about medieval France. Do you go tooling around the Internet uh, seeking out such things? Actually, I was listening to a lecture published by the Great Courses Company. So they, oh, okay. they sell various college lecture series on a lot of different topics. And I had purchased one called The Terror of History, and it was all about different movements particularly through the Middle Ages, such as you know, witchcraft, millenarian movements, various sort of religious uh, ideas that became popular, as well as a, a sort of craze over heresy and the violence that followed it. And so I was listening to a lecture about the Albigensian Crusade in what is now southern France and about the inquisitions that followed that war. And I was astonished that I had never heard anything about this before in my life. And I wondered how something so dark and so significant to history could have flown under my radar completely. And I became curious and, and started to read more about it. And then before long, I realized that this story had all the right materials to make a setting for some really terrific fiction. Uh, and so, of course, you have to you have to dive into to history, right? You've In the uh, promotional materials, there's a quote from uh, R.I. Moore, Professor Emeritus History at Newcastle University, um, R.I. Moore says that uh, Julie Berry has done her homework, so you've got certification there. <laughs> well, I certainly did try to. Um, there, it was a, a long process, a lot of reading, a lot of research, and a lot of reaching out to academics uh, like Mr. Moore and um, others who have been invaluable in, in my effort to better understand this really complicated history. It's not only complicated, but it's, um, I guess you could say, interpretations of this period of time are somewhat controversial and you know, the subjects of, of a great deal of academic debate. And so uh, there was conflict on every side. <laughs> that made it interesting. I wonder if I could have you read the, uh, the, the two quotations at the beginning, then a, a bit of the first part of the, the book. Before we even get into the plot of the book, because I think there's, there's a sense of mystery. Okay. Sin is the cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well and all manner of thing shall be well. That's by Julian of Norwich, 14th century mystic, and the first woman known to write a book in English, from Revelations of Divine Love, chapter 27. 
Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated what they had to leave us, a symbol, a symbol perfected in death, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. T.S. Eliot, 20th century poet, quoting Julian in his poem, Little Gidding. 1290, Friar Arnout d'Avignonnet, the convent of the Jacobins, Tolosa. I must write this account, and when I have finished, I will burn it. Mine is the historian's task to record the events of the last century, showing God's mighty hand in ridding these southern lands between the Garona and the Rose Rivers of the heresy of the Albigensians. I am asked to show future generations how God's justice was carried out by the crusade against these so-called good men, Bunzumes, good women, Bunas Femnas, and friends of God, Amix de Dieu, and how the inquisitions that followed, wrought by my brother Dominicans, finished God's holy work. The collected records of more than half a century of inquisitorial toil are mine to examine, transcripts, testimonies, and confessions from a generation now all but extinct. When searching out a history, sifting through a thousand facts and ten thousand lives, one often uncovers pieces that do not fit. The prudent choice is to cast those details aside, like chaff into the fire. The story must be understandable. The moral should be clear. Perhaps I am not a prudent man. I found pieces that haunted me, voices echoing from parchment leaves that would not let me sleep at night. I could find no rest until I searched out the truth, studied what I could learn about those involved, and found a way with, I pride myself, a minimum of invention to make the pieces fit, if only for me. There are those who would say this record casts doubt upon the righteousness of the Church's work, which is why this book, written for my private satisfaction, must not outlive me. That's uh, Julie Berry reading from her book, The Passion of Dulce, which is uh, just just out. So there, there's a sense of mystery here. This, this, this historian, uh, he's intrigued by this, but it doesn't fit the narrative that he is tasked with, with painting. Absolutely. There was very much a, a, an imperative to tell the story of what was done through the lens of it having been done to the glory of God and through his mighty hand, the, uh, the savagery, the, the annihilations that were part of the Albigensian Crusade, which lasted for 20 years in this region, just prior to the start of this story, um, was, was described by the Roman Catholic officials who were leading this crusade as having been, you know, victories of a biblical proportion. When what it was was, you know, entire cities incinerated, every man, woman, and child, you know, choking to death in the smoke. Um, so it's it's interesting to me, and of course, tragically, morbidly interesting, <laughs> to to see ways in which holy violence, you might say, genocide, butchery, um, can be cloaked in this um, aura of sanctity and holiness if if people can be led to believe that this is God's will. And unfortunately, that's a theme that comes down to our time. It does. I found it chilling. I found it eerily modern, <laughs> even though it was rooted in 13th century sensibilities. It was, it was 
painfully surprising to me how how relevant this time felt, how how reminiscent of 20th and 21st century tragedies that we are still working through. Mm. Uh, so tell me about the Albigensians. What what uh, and the Albigensian Crusade? Sure. So this was a, a war that lasted from 1209 to 1229, fought in southern, what we now call southern France, but what was then Provence, or Provincia in Latin. And uh, it was as a result of this war and the peace treaty that followed it that those lands eventually were annexed into France, but they weren't part of France at the start of the 13th century. This war was fought over a belief held by Catholic intellectuals, including Pope Innocent III himself, that this region of Provence was steeped in heresy. And the, the war became known as the Albigensian Crusade because Albigensian was a sort of nickname used by northern Frenchmen to describe the men of the south or the people of the south. Um, but the, the, the actual heretics, which I would say were not by my measurement heretics, but, you know, it's a very subjective term, I guess you'd say. They were these people that I mentioned in the reading called the good men, Bunzumes, the good women, Bunas Femnas, and the friends of God, the Amix de Dieu. And they were people that were found in every city and town and village throughout the region. They were, I guess you'd just say, sort of a, a local flavor of, uh, of life, a, a sort of not even a movement or a group, but they were, uh, they believed in certain patterns of holiness, certain forms of prayer. They lived very simply. They usually did not marry. They wore very simple clothing and were generally poor. And they were held in wide respect in their communities for being people of integrity and virtue and simplicity. So they were not a church, but they were just, you might say, a sort of local tradition. And they were seen by all as being pious Christians, certainly by themselves. But Catholic intellectuals passing through saw this practice and saw these people being honored and you know, bowed to by their countrymen, and they interpreted it as a heretical religion that had sprung up. And one of those people was Dominic de Guzman, who we now know as Saint Dominic, but he farmed his order of Dominican friars preachers specifically to combat this heresy. And so there was a movement of preaching to try to convert these so-called heretics over to the true faith, but that didn't work because everyone local understood that they were part of the true faith. And um, when that failed, uh, Pope Innocent III began looking for a way to start a war. And he received his opportunity, I guess you'd say, when one of his legates or ambassadors sent to negotiate with Count Raymond of Toulouse was murdered. And that murder, uh, the historians believe it to have been a sort of isolated event, was, was one of those pivotal moments in history, like the assassination of Arch, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Uh, it, it, was the, it was the justification that Pope Innocent III needed to call down a crusade. And what's significant about this crusade is it is the first time that a crusade had been called in Europe against Europe. So this was the first time European Christians slaughtered other European Christians for the sake of Christ. Prior to that, crusades were expeditions to the Holy Land. But it was the first time that this idea of Christian holy war was invoked to carry out a local uh, agenda. Hmm. And in part, it's it, there are eerie echoes to our time. In part, there's you know, some, some of this we probably don't understand as well. 
I was thinking that the, one of the factors here is that there, there's not, officially there's not supposed to be diversity of ideas, right? It's supposed to be one Christian faith. Everybody is supposed to adhere strictly. Absolutely. You know, the term Catholic means universal. And so, you know, there was a, a feeling that there should be one universal faith and it should be, you know, completely under the authority of Rome. And so this this war and then the inquisitions that followed it uh, were exercises in attempting to police thought and to try to regulate and intimidate into, submiss- into submission the hearts and minds of Europe. Um, and, you know, obviously to modern Americans and modern Europeans, this is a repugnant idea because we now value freedom of thought, freedom of belief, um, but obviously we've seen throughout even modern totalitarian regimes efforts made to suppress and control thought. And I think that it, it goes along, it corresponds well with the church's rise in power in other ways. Um, in order to in order to grow in power, the church needed uh, an enemy to fight, you might say. They needed, they needed to amass power in order to justify their their reach and so inventing the the threat of heresy of you know being about to overthrow society and overthrow the faithful gave created the justification for the church to grow in military and economic might just as you might say Hitler and his regime inventing the idea that the Jews were the cause of all of Germany's problems and that they were the threat, the common enemy that must be destroyed. Therefore, they needed to build up a massive military-industrial complex to have the weapons and the tools and the money to eliminate the Jews. This was all, it's the same kind of pattern of scapegoating and, and creating an enemy in order to justify uh, a rapid rise to power. You're listening to Access Utah. We're talking with author Julie Berry. We're talking about her historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. More information at julieberrybooks.com. We'll have more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members, and support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators one story at a time. Utah Public Radio congratulates the USU campus in Brigham City for receiving certification for sustainable building. The recently opened Brigham City Academic Building achieved LEED certification for implementing practical and measurable strategies, including sustainable site development, water savings, energy efficiency, material selection, and indoor environmental quality. Kudos from Utah Public Radio. It's Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Julie Berry. She is award-winning author of All the Truth That's in Me and uh, several other books. Her uh, new historical novel is titled The Passion of Dulce. You can join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Um, I understand you uh, you became interested in, in the lives of uh, medieval female mystics. Um, Very much so. Tell, tell, tell yes. me about uh, some some of them. So, you know, uh, some that we would have heard of: Catherine of Siena, uh, Clara mm-hmm. of Assisi. That's right. Um, many people are familiar with Hildegard of Bingen, 
or as you said, Catherine of Siena, Claire of Assisi, Teresa of Avila, you know, many others, McTeald of Magdeburg. Um, it, a lot of people are, have, have studied the mystics, whether through their literary studies or through religious studies or through feminist studies, because these women lived very um, startling lives at, at an age where there were really no other options for women besides marriage and motherhood. These women dared to claim an alternate path and to seek a life that they would find more spiritually fulfilling because of their their deep passion for God. And that passion was so consuming and so compelling. It, it filled them with so much joy and longing that they were willing to give up all else in order to claim it, including, you know, they, they shaved their hair, they, you know, forsook their names, they gave up all their worldly possessions, they lived in poverty, they lived in hunger and privation in order to have the privilege of devoting their lives to prayer and service. And, you know, some of us today would look at that and think, that's just bizarre. (laughs) But I think we have to remember how courageous it was of them to defy convention and to defy their families and to defy, um, you know, society's overwhelming expectations for women and and carve out a life that would fulfill them. And, you know, it was very fulfilling. I mean, most of us today might not find the idea of being a nun in a cloister so liberating, (laughs) but they were able to devote their lives to study and prayer and service and the companionship of other women. And that probably sounded like a paradise to many, as opposed to, you know, having a child every year until you died. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, and the mystic part of it, that w- was that, I mean, there were there were male mystics, right? But, but there are a lot of female mystics. Definitely. And, and certainly there were male mystics. Anybody who devoted their life to seeking encounters with God and who claimed to receive such encounters would be described as a mystic. And so, you know, John of the Cross is one example of a male mystic, and he was a contemporary, I believe, of Teresa of Avila. Um, but there were many people who abandoned all else in order to devote their entire lives to trying to find God and trying to communi- commune with him directly and to receive his presence into their lives. And this usually involved a path of you know, giving up worldly comforts, even depriving the flesh, you might say, so fasting and living in very austere conditions, um, living in isolation so that social pressures and distractions didn't interfere with their pursuit of God. Um, you know, again, some of the things they did might look odd to us today, but I can't help but admire the fervor of their desire and the intensity of their commitment to this ideal of finding God. And as a person of faith, I admire it tremendously. And I look at my own life and think, hmm, <laughs> how much am I really willing to give up? <laughs> it's, uh, they hold up a mirror, I think, to all of us uh, in terms of what is possible for the heart that that longs for God, and mm-hmm. it's really inspiring. The, so, you, you're a person of faith, you said. So, um, I wonder, do you draw any parallels to to today? We we have, uh, you know, famously the the nuns are not N U N but N O N E S mm-hmm. are are kind of becoming the largest group, not not subscribing mm-hmm. to any particular organized religion, but but describing themselves as spiritual. I I do think there are. Um, parallels to today, and I think that a lot of people, including those who would describe themselves as atheist or 
or a nun, as you say, you know, ascribing to no faith but being open to spiritual things. I think that the story of these mystics has a great deal to offer them. And I believe that a story like Dulce's, who is the mystical character in this book, who, you know, gives up all in order to pursue her beloved and yet is tragically and cruelly religiously persecuted because of it, I think that a story like Dulce's really offers a good discussion ground for the issues and the controversies that we face surrounding faith and spirituality today. This book does not um, condemn all religion simply because it portrays the darkest, most violent manifestations of what religious zeal can do. Um, it, it also tries to show um, the beauty that, that some people manage to find in, in their spiritual journeys, as well as the complexity of that beauty, the elusive character of it, how even Dulce, this you know, incredibly pious and, and ardent girl, has to kind of walk through her own valley of sorrow and doubt and questioning and wondering why she cannot find God anymore. So I, I think that it has a lot to say to people, and from what I've been observing from the, the response by readers, I'm finding that many people who would describe themselves as not religious are still very much drawn to to how this book allows a conversation about religion. I know a lot of people who are not themselves religious, and yet they describe a certain kind of envy uh, that they feel toward those people who are able to find solace and consolation and community and meaning in faith. They they say, you know, I, I can't in honesty myself find it, there, but I, I feel some longing and some envy of those who, who can. At least some people feel that way. We're talking with Julie Berry. Uh, she's uh, author of uh, several books. The latest is The Passion of Dolce, a novel. Uh, let me just read a couple paragraphs here, uh, give uh, readers, uh, uh, listeners a, a sense of, of what this book is. Dolce, a young noblewoman from the city, year, by the way, is 12... Uh, 41, is on the run, hunted by an obsessed friar, determined to burn her as a heretic for divine love, divine love that she will not refute. Votil is a clever and charismatic peasant, a matchmaker, operating a tavern with her two sisters in, as you call it, Bajas? Bajas? Uh, Bajas. Bajas, uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. A uh, teeny seaside town. When the matchmaker finds the mystic nearly dead by a riverside, she takes Dulce in and discovers the girl's extraordinary healing power aided by her sisters, and is it Simo? Um, mm-hmm. Her surly but loyal neighbor, Botil, nurses Dulce back to health and hides her from the pursuers, but all of Botil's tricks, tales, and plans can't protect them forever, and when the full wrath of the church bears down upon Bias, Dulce's passion and Botil's good intentions could destroy the entire village. That's the plot in brief. Uh, so, Julie Baird, tell me, tell me a bit about uh, Dulce. She, she's, she's a mystic? She is. She is a, a young noblewoman from the city of Tolosa, or Toulouse as we call it today, and she lives right in sort of ground zero of the, the inquisitors. Um, and so when she begins to speak in a very small sphere about her visions and her experiences with her beloved, who is Jesus, um, she attracts the attention of the friars and is interrogated and ultimately convicted of the crime of heresy and sentenced to death by fire, along with her mother, because in this world, in this context, association with a heretic meant that you were a heretic yourself. So simply by associating it all, you were, you were assumed to be equally a threat. Again, eerily modern, where we have you know, politicians talking about 
taking out the lives of the family members of terrorists, right? If you were connected to a heretic in any way, you must be a heretic yourself. And so Dulce and her mother are sentenced to death by fire, and Dulce must watch as her mother is indeed executed. And then just as it's about to be her turn, she is miraculously cut free, or she believes it to be a miracle, and something tells her to run. And so she runs and escapes and becomes a fugitive, fleeing the Inquisitors for her life, but very ill-prepared to survive Hmm. on her own, you might say. The title, The Passion of Dulce, passion meant something different in 1241 than it does today. It did indeed. The um, well, I've got to be careful what I say here. Well, and I, I definitely chose the title um, for, I guess you might say, both layers of meaning that are available because certainly hers is a passion every bit as intense and romantic and even sexual as any other, you know, love affair. But also the term, the passion of, was, was used in the Middle Ages as as today even to describe the the sufferings of a saint, usually those sufferings culminating in uh, their martyrdom. So when we talk about the, you know, the movie The Passion of the Christ, that's what that term means. Um, you know, something perhaps very familiar to Catholics who study the lives of saints, but perhaps less familiar to the rest of us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Dulce, passion in a physical sense, very much in the physical realm, but also passion in the spiritual sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about Botille. Botilla is wonderful. She is Botilla, so what, okay. quite the but <laughs> it's okay. okay. Quite the the counterpoint, you might say, to Dulce. She is if if Dulce is pious, Botilla and her sisters are anything but. They are scrappy little survivors. They they grew up as sort of homeless little thieves when their mother died. And they arrived in this town of Bias and tried to go straight and run this little tavern. But going straight is sort of a relative term for three motherless and essentially fatherless young girls trying to survive in a, in a medieval world. So um, they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And uh, the older sister seems to supplement their income with a, a little bit of the oldest profession in the world. <laughs> and uh, Botia herself is a matchmaker. She has a knack for figuring out which people would get along well together. And so she kind of brokers marriages in their little town. Her younger sister, Cezia, is a bit of a fortune teller. And where I got the inspiration for these three sisters is kind of comical. I was thinking one day that it would be fun to imagine Macbeth's three witches <laughs> as teenage sisters running a roadside inn. <laughs> and so that became these three girls. And of course, they're not really witches in the story, but they have these sort of talents, you might say, and they, they use them to just try to survive. So Botia is, is a championship liar and thinks that she can lie her way out of trouble and has done so for most of her life, um, but her ability to lie her way out of, out of a mess is really tested by the, the precision and the, uh, the intensity of the Inquisitor's pursuit for guilt wherever it can be found. But she takes Dulce in out of just basic human compassion and kindness and doesn't realize at first how how dangerous her good deed could be. The scene where she rescues uh, Dulce by the riverside is, is written as a sort of deliberate retelling of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, and uh, what, what Botia will find is that her good deed may cost her everything. Mm. And yet she still believes, as I do, 
that 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 was still the right choice to make. Hmm. Yeah, uh, very complex, and uh, as hmm. these things often are. Um, what if you tell me about the, this? Not a character in your book, but uh, you have her at the beginning, beginning of the book. I I had not known of Julian of Norwich, fourteenth uh, century mystic. You you have her quote there, hmm. and and the first woman apparently uh, known to write a book in English. She's a she's a fascinating woman. Um, her her writings are sublime. Her her spiritual view of God's relationship to man and the nature of sin and the nature of pardon and salvation is I find um, extraordinarily beautiful and tender and comforting. She not a lot is known about her. She uh, was a, a recluse. She lived in a cell, a, a sort of cubicle built attached to the the church of St. Julian in the city of Norwich, England. So we call her Julian, but we don't know her real name, but she's called Julian after the church where she was enclosed um, there in that cell. So her cell had no door. So she was built into this room for life, which was what she wanted. And uh, somebody came and, you know, brought her food and so forth, and she was able, through a, a sort of opening in the wall, to hear the Mass. But um, she she never left that room, and she was able in that room to devote her life to meditation and prayer and, and to writing her book. Um, and she was, you know, visited by many people who came to seek her wisdom, um, including a woman named Marjorie Kemp, another mystic in the Middle Ages, who wrote what we would consider the first autobiography. And so, again, these these mystical women were remarkable in their urge to write and tell their stories. But Julian is a, a, a wonderful study. Even though we don't know as much about her as we'd like to, um, her writings, uh, you know, they, they still endure. You're listening to Access Utah. We are spending the hour with author Julie Berry. We're talking about her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. More information on Julie Berry at julieberrybooks.com. More following a break. Hi, I'm Rachel Giza. Girls on film, Hungry Like the Wolf, Notorious. The 1980s wouldn't have been the same without Duran Duran. Next time on Q, the British synth-pop stars will talk about their endurance and working today with the likes of Kaiza and Janelle Monet. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. We reached our last segment now with Julie Berry. We're talking about her new historical novel, The Passion of Dulce. I'd like to talk a little bit about history and how history is made. Um, you note that many of the, the, the mystics, female mystics we've been talking about, they started out as heretics and became saints. Mm. And I suppose, you know, that, that, that path is also a path of who's writing the history and, and when, right? Very much so. These women were tremendously courageous in daring to speak out about their encounters with God, especially in a time when you might say there was a male monopoly <laughs> on, on God, on religious leadership, on inspiration and revelation and prophecy. So it was a great leap of faith for them to go public with their experiences. But what's remarkable about their lives is that their apparent encounters with God filled them with a confidence and a fearlessness 
a, a compulsion to tell their story, come what may. But they spoke out, and whether or not they were embraced as a visionary and ultimately sainted or persecuted and executed as a heretic had everything to do with how their local bishop viewed them. So if their local bishop believed they were sincere and legitimate, they would be pretty well protected and shielded from persecution and harm. And if they had a following and were believed to have performed some miracles, a petition would be made soon after their death to have them sainted. And so many of them ultimately are are, are female saints. But um, others who were not so fortunate in, uh, in how they were received by local leadership were, were, were punished or silenced or in some cases executed. If we bring this forward to uh, today, this idea in a secular sense, do you see a similar path for some people to start as a heretic, end up as a saint, you know, and again, in, in a secular sense? Mm, interesting. Well, I, I mean, I think uh, I, I've thought about this a lot in terms of modern religions and the, the things that modern faiths do to sort of police the boundaries of orthodoxy in their tradition and how it is that um, that any new religious voice that comes forward may be welcomed as an innovator or uh, a, you know a visionary someone with something beneficial to offer or may be rejected as a danger to the faithful and I think that it does deal a blow to the soul of the organization if violence of any form is used to drive out <laughs> the dangerous beliefs. I think, you know, you ask an interesting question though, about, you know, secular realms or, or maybe political arenas, um, you know, how we, how we uh, make space for differences of belief. Well, for example, if we look at the McCarthy era, right, the kinds of uh, reign of terror and interrogation and guilt by association that we from the Inquisitors in the 13th century, we see again in you know 1950s United States, where you know if if ever you were accused of being a communist or being a sympathizer or associating with them, there was really no way to wash off the taint of that accusation. You were you were guilty, and uh, you know the same kind of thing where um, you know the reign of terror and um, ideas that may have had a great deal of validity. Uh, were, were nevertheless, you know, driven out of town on a rail, you might say. Mm-hmm. And, and in one sense, you know, in, in in the modern world, we're we're kind of not supposed to have heretics, right? Because it's supposed to be free flow of ideas, marketplace of ideas. Um, but you know, I, I think we do have we do we do definitely have limits where where most people would say that's beyond the pale, and that probably shifts as as well as we go along. Mm. Well, there are those, you know. Um, Religious groups that make the news from time to time, um, you know, whether accurately reported or not, we, we don't know. But, I mean, we can think of, oh, you know, Waco, Texas, or, um, you know, I'm not going to come up with all the, the right names, but, you know, various sort of fringy religious movements that are just odd and deviant and dangerous, and, and or so we feel. And uh, so, so that happens from time to time, but usually that falls into the territory that most people would dismiss as, you know, radical and bizarre and cultish, and so that doesn't count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I think that in many uh, dominant religions today, you have a, a great deal of tension and pull over social questions. 
for example, the role of women in those movements or um, how how that religion can enter the modern world and how people can live the religion as well as be part of a secular or democratic society. I think that you know much of the conflict that we see um, in in the Middle East has to do with varying interpretations of how uh, Islamic faith should be allowed to um, enter the modern world. Well, you know, how, how much, how secular can you be and, and still be part of that faith? And obviously there are, you know, enormous populations of people who've made that transition without any difficulty, but there are other parts of the world where a great deal of violence is, is taking place over who gets to regulate that. If you just joined us, we're talking with Julie Berry. She's author of All the Truth That's in Me, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwilla Palace, Secondhand Charm, The Amaranth Enchantment, and the Splurge Academy series. And uh, her latest is The Passion of Dolce. Uh, Julie Berry, is there another passage you'd like to read from, from the book? Oh, yes. I'm going to read a short section by Botia. This is toward the beginning of the book. And this is actually Botia as an adult looking back on her life. She is speaking to someone, and I think it will become clear who as I read. And so I'm going to read a section as she sort of introduces her life story, looking back. 1267, Botia. I swear to tell the full and exact truth about myself and others, living and dead. Why keep secrets? There's no one it would help. The dead are all I have to talk about anyway. What harm can there be in telling their stories now? They are safe, beyond reach. There was a time when my name was Botia, when I lived with my sisters and our old Jobau. We lived by our wits and great buckets of nerve and anything, anything we could steal or sell. Like most in Proenza, we'd seen hunger and illness. We'd grown up in Carcassona, a city broken by the Crusaders before we were born. But what was yesterday's war to little girls? We'd lost our mother. That was all we had room for. She left each of us her love, her reputation, two sisters, and Jabao, and one silver crucifix to share. We begged for our dinner and stole washing from peasants to clothe little Sazia. We huddled together to keep warm at night. Jabao's drinking and his temper harried us from town to town at the hands of the bailes, bailiffs. We were wanderers, survivors, always searching for a home. We thrived upon it, greedy little urchins, foolhardy little thieves. Now I see we were magic, my sister and I. We laughed at ourselves, at Jobau and the world. Nobody's ever made me laugh like my cynical little Sazia could. You wouldn't think it to know her now. We gave Plazenza, the eldest, fits of rage with our cheek. Life was sweet, though I doubt we realized how much. Home was each other, not walls but the adventure of the search to find them. Our wanderings led us to a small seaside town called Bias, and there, among vintners and fishermen, we saw an opening and decided to seek a home. We washed our faces and combed our hair and tried to make something more of ourselves. We swore we'd give up thieving. We'd grown old enough to know it was safer to be inside the law and the arms of the villa than out of them. We took over an old derelict tavern and dared to run it. Plazenza's brewing, our scrubbing, Sazia's fortune-telling, and my hustle brought customers in. We began to feel that we might belong, 
and others counted us among their neighbors and friends. Finally and forever, I believed, we could be safe. Then I met Dulce. That's Julie Berry reading from The Passion of Dulce, her, uh, her new novel. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, the, this area of, uh, right now it's uh, Provence in, in France, right? It's a That's right. separate and area. Of then. course, it's, it, the, the area called Provence or, or you know, Provenza in the novel stretches beyond what is today the, the region of Provence in modern France. So it would include, you know, the area called Languedoc and um, it's a little larger, but this town of Bias is based on the present-day town of Baj, which I got to visit as, as I did my research, and it is right on the coast of a lagoon or lake off the coast of the Mediterranean, so it's called Letang, and it is, uh, as I said, like a lagoon. So Baj is a small village on a, you know, nestled on a hill, hilltop, with a sloping down to the the shore of this lagoon off the sea, and it is just stunning. Uh, one vestige uh, from, I guess, from the, the times you write about in the book is is the Provencal dialect. I think some people mm. still still speak that older form. It, it's true. So the language spoken in this part of the world at the time of the story was not French at all. Oh, okay. It was no. It was called well. We scholars today call it Old Provençal, and its modern form we call today Occitan. And so that's based on the the root is O C Uc, and that was the word for yes used in this part in this language. So there was the the Languedoc, the language of Oc or Uc, and then there was the Languedoc, which was the lang the, the language of we basically. So the Northerners said we for yes, and that's what we call French today. And the Southerners spoke ook. They said ook for yes. So that's the Languedoc. And, you know, Languedoc is a, is a part of France today. But the language of Occitan derived from Old Provençal, just like modern English derives from the the language spoken by Chaucer. <laughs> mm -hmm. So sort of the same, but pretty different, too. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, Ch Chaucer came along later than this story by a little bit. So um, Occitan is still in use today in parts of southern France, but its, it's use has dwindled greatly and has been sort of under systematic attack by French officials who have wanted very much to impose French upon the region as its national language. Um, and so when I was traveling throughout the region, I asked people that I encountered whether they spoke Occitan, and they, they kind of all said, well, my, my parents did and my grandparents did, and I, you know, I, I know what it means, but I can't really speak it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, there, you know, a very small number of people still use the language today, but it has seen a bit of an artistic and poetic revival. You can hear you know, folk songs sung, and um, you know, they're, they're, it, it's, it's being kept alive, you might say, in the arts. Um, so I hope that it will not die. So the, it sounds like the French Academy has been somewhat successful. I mean, they they're trying to they're trying to repel the uh, the invaders. You know, things like Le Sweater and Le Skyscraper, and but also <laughs> the, the also I guess the older forms of French. They want a unified French language. Mm, right. Well, and you know, nationalized education sort of. Uh, oh, I guess that would that would help too. Yeah, or or hinder yeah. depending on your point of view. Um, right. Exactly. I want to before we before we end here, I want to uh, switch over from Passion of Dulce and talk about one of your other books, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Prickwilla Palace, 
particular place, rather. Um, this one is, it seems like a very fun book. This one is is set in Victorian times, right? You, you seem to like to do historical research. I do. I, it's not it's not in every single one of my books, but I I really do enjoy learning about the past and about different cultures and languages and places. So this one is set in Victorian England, and uh, oh, I just had a blast mm. writing this one. It's sort of my love letter to you know British farcical plays and Dickens and Agatha Christie all sort of mishmashed into one. And we've got the we got the book trailer. So uh, let's uh, <laughs> let, let's let's hear this. It's fun. <laughs> it's kind of kind of fun to. <laughs> to, to sure. hear this. This is the story of seven proper finishing school girls with one tiny secret. They were impersonating their deadhead mistress whom they buried with her odious brother in the back garden after both rudely died at dinner with the horror of being sent home. This scandalous sisterhood resolved to stay together and neither poison nor murder nor nosy English neighbours could stand in their way for long. So uh, there it is. That's kind of a fun... (laughs) Kind of a fun thing. These uh, these these girls at the school, their their headmistress, I guess, dies mysteriously, and they decide uh, they don't want adults around. So so they disguise <laughs> one of the girls as the headmistress, and then and then they go from there. That's right. They they think they can run their own little, you know, teenage girls utopia in this school, and no one will be the wiser. Um, and so of course they just bury the bodies in the back garden. What could go wrong with this plan? <laughs> it sounds pretty foolproof to them. Uh, of course, they do find that it's not quite as easy as they thought it would be, in part because apparently someone has murdered the headmistress, and uh, if they succeed in persuading the world that she's still alive, that murderer will probably strike again. So they have a, a murder mystery to solve, and a lie to uphold, and a school to run, and uh, they really have to work as a team to try to pull that off. So it's, it's, a, it's farcical and fun. Yeah, it sounds like fun. I was trying to find this quote again, and I couldn't find it to, to attribute it. Uh, someone said if you, if you took David Sedaris and Agatha Christie and they had a, they had a child, it would be Julie Berry. <laughs> if that extremely improbable union occurred. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, that that's a quote that appears on the back of the book by author Holly Goldberg Sloan. And, uh, that would really oh, it's, it's right here in the back of the book. Okay, there. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Um, but but so a sense of sense of fun there. I mean, mystery, but also fun. Definitely, absolutely. Yeah, I like to write a lot of different in a lot of different styles. I I like each book to be very different from the next, and so that book is very playful. Um, whereas you know. Some others a little less so, mm, <laughs> like yeah. Heretics and Inquisition is mm. not quite as a playful a combination. <laughs> <laughs> just uh, don't have much time left. Uh, um, I want to just get briefly into your biography. You say after your fourth son was born, you decided since your family dreams were now well underway, it was time to pursue writing novels. You went back and got your MFA and uh, and uh, jumped in. So that's with, do uh, you have, what, four boys? I do, four sons, yeah. Four sons, Maybe a little busier than four girls. I don't know, but but even you know, e- either way, and then you then you want to jump into writing. How did that go? <laughs> well, I think I was sort of 
fueled by uh, the craziness of my life. If that probably sounds paradoxical, you know, how does a busy mom find time to write? Well, a busy mom has to really uh, find a way to survive. <laughs> and writing became my outlet, and it was really a, a wonderful source of joy. Not that my children weren't, but they were, you know, they were a handful. They still are. And uh, especially when they were young, you know, their 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 needs were intense, and I had a correspondingly intense need to create a little corner of my life that was for me. And so I believe that, that it was not in spite of my children that I wrote, but because of them, and in, in the best of ways. And I think it's been... Um, it's been a real blessing for the whole family. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. Uh, finally, what are you what are you on to next? What are you working on? I'm working on a younger middle grade story right now. It's in the revision stage called The Emperor's Ostrich, very playful uh, magical adventure tale, sort of in the in the vein of Lloyd Alexander. It's kind of my love letter to him. And beyond that, I am really kind of casting about looking for inspiration for my next young adult novel and uh, not sure where that'll take me. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. Julie Berry is uh, author of All the Truth That's in Me, The Scandalous Sisterhood of Brickwillow Place, Secondhand Charm, The Amaranth Enchantment, and the Splurge Academy uh, series. She lives in Los Angeles, California. The latest is The Passion of Dulce. The website is julieberrybooks.com. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Commentator Gina Wickwar. Signing up for that two-week Viking River Cruise, Ben and I didn't fully understand what we were in for. Our floating trip up the Danube from Budapest, across the Main, and down the Rhine to Amsterdam meant we'd be entering and exiting many, many locks. Who'd have thunk it? We'd been in Panama in January on our way home from Ecuador and had spent hours watching ships pass through the Miraflores locks on the Isthmus Balboa Pacific side. I'd lived almost four years in the Canal Zone when I was a girl, so the locks, while fascinating and world-famous, were rather old hat, sort of like the Erie Canal and its mule named Sal. But neither the Erie nor the Panama locks can hold a candle to the enormous amount of locks, nearly 80, that we passed through en route to the North Sea. We went through many of the locks while we slept, but we were wide awake to experience our passage through nearly half of them. Even as a child, I watched as the then-large ships squeezed through the Panamanian locks, coming within feet of their sides. That's why, just last week, the Panama Republic had its grand opening of another set of much wider locks to accommodate today's humongous cargo ships and tankers. That's not likely to happen soon in Europe. Our long ship, the Mimir, about 30 feet wide and 444 feet long, was built like its sisters, just narrow enough and short enough to squeeze through many of our cruise's locks. In fact, we were so often pinched in a lock, I could slide open my glass doors and put my hand on the lock wall. Covered with barnacles, or at least some freshwater creatures, it was like a dark, black, encrusted barrier. 
But if I waited five minutes, I found myself slowly rising until I was suddenly viewing sunshine, vineyard-covered hillsides, and fields and villages alongside the banks. The reverse was also true. I waved bye-bye to sunshine, hillsides, and fields as I sank lower and lower into the bowels of the lock. The truth is, the rise and fall of the various locks was sometimes overwhelming. On the Mine River stretch of the canal, where there are 16 locks, inside just one lock, we experienced a lifting height of 82 feet. It would take at least a day to review the history of this extensive European canal system. The Mine-Danube Canal, the great connector of the Danube and Rhine, has a long history, starting as early as the 8th century when Charlemagne made the first attempt to establish the link between the North and Black Seas. But the undertaking failed because of incessant rainstorms. You see, workers couldn't bail fast enough to keep their big ditch dry. From 1845 to the early 1940s, there existed the 101-lock Ludwig-Danube Mine Canal, named after Bavarian King Ludwig I, who built it to provide building materials for his Liberty and Valhalla monuments. But its use declined when it was unable to compete with railways. World War I revitalized the Ludwigs Canal briefly, but traffic ground to a halt in 1941 and made only a small comeback starting in 1947. Today's Mine Danube Canal was begun in 1959 and finally finished in 1992. The Danube and Rhine were at last connected with a modern waterway, even though the connection still requires 16 locks to account for the rise and fall of river elevations. That notwithstanding, I'm betting old Charlemagne and Ludwig I are resting comfortably in their graves. This is Gina Wickwar. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.